You're listening to a live recorded teaching from the Sunday Gathering at the Heights Church in Denver, Colorado. We hope that this teaching is an encouragement to you. To find out more about the Heights Church, visit theheightsdenver.com. Sorry, I'm kind of, thank you, that means so much. I'm also mid, uh, my wife is trying to get out with our four kids right now, so I'm like, th- that's my wife, if you want to honor her, she's going right there. <laughs> my four kids. <laughs> Love you guys. Um, you know, as you were talking, Corbin, I feel like three stories came to, to mind, which were like... Uh, I, I don't really want my time to count yet because this is a response to what you said and it's not the actual sermon uh, itself. The first was, you know, I said this in the first time, but the first was that I failed a church planning assessment back in 2009. And it was the same thing. I was told to not do ministry at all. Like, just go get a normal job. Who do you think you are? And it was in this building before the summit or the Heights existed in L2 Church was here that I met with Russ McKendry, who was the counselor to my wife and I. Um, it's so weird, even this morning, I was getting ready in that office, and I was like, I got marriage counseling uh, in that office. And Russ, if anybody knows Russ, I mean, Jesse, you know Russ. Russ is just a great, like, screw those guys. You're going to do great. <laughs> and, and, and the reason I think about that story is just, like, it is amazing, not just, not just in the city, but even in this particular building. Like, it's, it's a testimony to... God loves this city more than any of us love this city, and the gospel will advance here, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And you just get, you get to this place where you feel like your church or your thing is like the most important thing, and you know, and then you just realize like, I'm a part of God's thing, you know? And it's like, in some ways, I feel like Russ trusted me, and I don't know if this is overspeak, I guess, Jesse, you can ask Russ later if he feels that way, but I feel like Russ kind of trusted me and gave me a baton to, like, do ministry in this city, and, um, and I feel the same way with you, you know, and um, it's been a joy to give everything to the city for almost 13 years, but, um, yeah, I just, like, I leave with the utmost confidence because you're here, and not... I'm going to use the southern you here. Y'all are here. Okay, not just like there's one person here, but there's this team and there's this community here and and just so evident that God is alive and changing lives in this community. I know I said said three stories. The the other two is I was thinking as you were up here, I was thinking about the very first time I came to one of y'all's gatherings, which was at Palmer Elementary, and it was like 40 people and no AC in the summer, which y'all have AC now. Congratulations, you made it. that's a major milestone in the church planting journey is AC. And, um, and just being like, it was just like, it was so evident, like this is gonna be great. You know, it's gonna be great. But even before that, the story that was coming to my mind is when y'all were like 10 people and you had a core team and somebody left poorly and told you like, this isn't gonna work. And we played cornhole and talked about it. And I was like, man, you're gonna do great. It's gonna be fine. And thanks for proving me right. Um, but more than anything, like God's hand is so much on you, y'all here, this community. Um, it's really cool to see God keep doing his thing uh, for the good of the city uh, and for the advancement of his kingdom through the heights. So 
Uh, you can start my time now, okay? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, won't, I don't think I'll be that long. But that's famous last words for a preacher. So, um, I'm, I'm going to talk to you about kindness. And this is one of my favorite things to talk to you about, kindness in an age of harshness. Um, I, I, I'm really passionate uh, about this. But before we dive into talking about kindness uh, in a time of harshness, I want to start with an image. Uh, here it is right here. Anybody know who this is? This is Steve Kerr. I know some of you, we don't care about this guy. That guy, you know, Michael Jordan, whatever. But this is Steve Kerr. This was a real basketball player in the 90s. I know it looks like, I mean, like that could might as well be me, photoshopped in playing basketball with Michael Jordan. But Steve Kerr was a real basketball player in the NBA, played about a decade in the league, but was not a great basketball player. Uh, He averaged six points a game. He averaged less than two rebounds a game. I know that's infinity percent more than I, may, I scored in the NBA, but um, he, he, was, he was not a great basketball player. Now, here's, let's go to this next image. This is Steve Kerr, the coach. Now, Steve Kerr, the coach, even though he wasn't a great player, is one of the greatest coaches already in the history of the league. He's been a coach for nine years, six of those nine years. Uh, he's gone to the NBA finals, four of those six years. He's won the finals. It's probably already cemented easily as a top 10 all-time coach in the history of the league. And so you have Steve Kerr, the player, Steve Kerr, the coach. Now you're like, why are you beginning this place? Well, Steve Kerr illustrates a reality about great coaches, that great coaches are usually the people who were extremely dysfunctional in the craft. They're trying to get the people they're coaching to be good at. And that's kind of the way I am with kindness, okay? Is that, is that like, I am really passionate about kindness. I love kindness. It's probably a good thing that my wife left the room because she might be like rolling her eyes at times, you know, being like this guy on kindness. Like, I, like kindness is not my uh, fundamental disposition. Shout out to the other Enneagram eights in the room and all the stereotypes are true. But it's like, but I am really, really passionate about helping people understand God's kindness and how it transforms and manifests kindness in their own lives as well. And, uh, you know, if you ask my wife, she'd probably be like, as it pertains to kindness, he's averaging about six points and less than two rebounds. Um, uh, but I do feel confident in helping, helping people in this, um, not, because it becomes nat- not because it becomes particularly natural to me, but because I've really tried to put in so much work and I'm like semi-functional in this respect. In fact, it was, it was, I was thinking about this this past week, um, if you could give me one last thing to preach about in, as a Colorado resident, it would actually be kindness. And even when I, uh, I, when I uh, shifted out of working at the summit, my last sermon was October 2nd of last year. And after I got done, a lot of people were very thoughtful to send me notes and say, hey, here's how 12 years of ministry or preaching was helpful to me. And the most frequent comment I got, which I was really surprised about, and there wasn't a close second, was, you really helped me understand that God is kind. Um, which was not the plan for the legacy I wanted to have when I moved to Denver in 2011. You know, if you had asked me, in 2011, you'd been like, how do you want to be remembered? I would have been like, I hope I'm remembered as being like a little bit nicer than Mark Driscoll, probably a little bit dumber than Tim Keller, but you know, and, um, and you know, maybe I got to write some books or like talk at some conferences or be an influencer or ignite a movement. And now, you know, that stuff, you can take it or leave it, but that God and his sovereignty appointed that, at least for some people, that's the way that I would be remembered uh, is, is really the greatest honor. And it's, it's kind of bizarre because we didn't orchestrate this, but that, that God would let me talk about something that I'm really passionate about, which is that we would grasp 
that God is kind. So we're going to talk about this concept of, of kindness in an, age of, uh, uh, in an age of harshness. You're in this series in Galatians 5 on the fruits of the Spirit. Corbin has used this language repeatedly, and whoever else has been preaching as well. The fruit in our life uh, reveals the roots of our life, and it's drawing from this theme in Galatians 5.22, this idea that the fruit of the Spirit is, and Paul lists a diversity of them, but today what we're going to be talking about is how the fruit of the Spirit is kindness. Now, let me kind of prep you for how we're going to have this conversation. I'm going to spend about 98% of the time not talking about you and not talking about me, but really talking about God. I really want you to have, and I think for a lot of us, if I asked you, what, what do you think of when you think of God? Uh, not many people think of God through the lens of kindness. Um, even if you've been a Christian for some time, you might think of him as severe you might think of him as, you know, distant. You know, maybe you even, this is what I see a lot of times in environments with good theology, is you might, thinking of him, you might think of him as like forgiving but exhausted with you. Like, I get it, he'll forgive me every single time I say I'm sorry, but he's kind of throwing up his hands like, you again? Like, I cannot believe we have to have this conversation again. Oh my gosh, this is so exhausting. But I don't meet many Christians who think of God as being kind. And one of, the, one of the robust themes of the scriptures is understanding uh, the, the significance of the magnitude that God is not just kind in some sort of theoretical way, but he's kind to you. He's kind to the you singular, like he's kind to you. And I just have this conviction that when you begin to not just wrap your mind around and theorize, but experience tangibly the reality that God is kind, it transforms something within us in the way that we approach people in the sphere of influence who have been entrusted to us. That's really Paul's reasoning in Galatians 5. And I'm just trying to help you understand, here's why I'm going to spend most of the time just talking to you about God. Here's Paul's reasoning. It's, he's telling us, okay, this is the idea of fruits of the Spirit. Manifest around you what God has not only demonstrated to you, but is transforming within you through his Holy Spirit. So this is kind of the way it is. It's like I experience God and the way he treats me, I want to treat the people around me, but it's not just out of a, I've got to do what I was told to do, but God is kind to take his spirit, who is God, he is the third person of the triune Godhead, who indwells us and transforms us to not only believe these realities, for example, Paul in Romans 5, 5 says that it's the spirit of God who pours into our hearts the fact that we are loved, but changes us and transforms us increasingly into the image of Jesus so that we can manifest these fruits to those in our home, okay? Like God is so kind, not just to tell us what to do, but transform us so we can do it. He doesn't just give us the destination, he puts the fuel in the tank to get there. That's Galatians 5. So when we develop a robust understanding of God's kindness towards us, we will manifest and mirror his kindness to those around us. So we're gonna talk about God, that's, that's almost who we'll exclusively talk about, but not because I hope this is uh, devoid of application from the way you treat your spouse or relate to your kids or go to work tomorrow, um, but because I just actually think the most practical thing we can do is talk about the God who is kind. So we're talking about three truths about God's kindness. And I think this is particularly crucial because we do exist in a cultural moment 
where the term kindness has been a bit hijacked, and some of you are like, oh, we're gonna talk about kindness, right? Because it's been hijacked, it's been reappropriated, it's been commercialized. Anybody seen like a Be Kind t-shirt or mug? Anybody get cut off on traffic in traffic on the way here this morning by somebody with like a Be Kind bumper sticker? Like some of you were given the finger by somebody on Colfax with a Be Kind bumper sticker on their Subaru, right? You're just like, man, this is everywhere. And we can get cynical towards this. And I think as we have a conversation about kindness, it's crucial for us to define our terms because that word has been so overused, we can have two extreme responses to it, neither of which are going to be helpful. For some of us, you know, we are so jaded by the person we know who is the least kind person in the world, projecting through their t-shirt, be kind, be kind, be kind, be kind. We're just like, this is some sort of Gen Z, weak stomach, snowflake stuff, like real men are tough, right? They're not kind, they're tough. Okay, we don't wanna do that because the scriptures define God is being kind and I want to be like God. The other extreme is we're just like, be kind, be kind, be kind. But we, without a lot of intentionality or thoughtfulness, are just wholesale adopting the cultural definition of that language, which really doesn't have much of a definition other than like, don't tell people they're wrong about anything and celebrate it. We have to exist in a third and truer and better way where we have to ask ourselves, like here's, here's the question I always think to myself, and uh, this past week I was, in, I was in a coffee shop writing this sermon and this woman walks in with a Be Kind t-shirt and I was like, I wanna go ask her what she means by that. I did not, um, not be, I wasn't like afraid of the, I wasn't like this is gonna be confrontational, but I, I like had a meeting in five minutes, I was like this is gonna be more than a five minute conversation. And, but I was like, that's what I think to myself. Like for, for thoughtful Christians who see this language of be kind, be kind, be kind, we shouldn't dismiss it and we shouldn't wholesale adopt it, but we should actually ask this question of it. Well, whose definition of kind? Whose definition? Because there's a lot of different definitions of kind. Like if you went on Colfax, ask 10 different people wearing 10 different, 10, uh, 10 different expressions of be kind paraphernalia. Hey, what do you mean by be kind? You might get 10 different answers. And so consequently, as a Christian, when we see that the scriptures testify to the reality that God is defined as being kind, we should say to ourselves, oh, okay, well, if the God who loves us and saves us, if the God who is the most powerful, most beautiful, most pure, uh, most brilliant being in the totality of the cosmos possesses the quality of kindness in his character, then that's the definition that I want to manifest in me and through me to the sphere of influence that's been entrusted to me. That's why then we're gonna kind of wrap our mind around, okay, how do the scriptures testify to the reality that God is kind? So three truths about God's kindness. Let's start here as Paul unpacks, all throughout Romans, Paul unpacks the reality that God is kind. But in, but in Romans 11, he makes this really interesting observation. So first, here's, the, here's what we're gonna see. We're gonna see that God's kindness is nuanced. God's kindness is nuance. Paul says this in Romans 11. Note then, and, and if you, if you uh, translate that literally, he's basically saying like, look at this, focus on this, meditate on this reality that God is kind. Note then the kindness and the, but what's the next word there? Severity of God, which is already interesting because we exist in a cultural moment where it's like you get to be kind or severe, you can't be both, but God possesses both qualities in the same person. 
Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Now, particularly, I mean, all of Romans is complex. Particularly the end of Romans, it just gets increasingly more complex. Thanks, Paul. And as, you know, we're not diving into the nuances of what Paul is contextually talking about here, where he's trying to wrestle through the relationship between Israel and the Gentiles and their understanding of salvation, things like this. But here's the big takeaway you should hear, is that God's kindness is way more nuanced than the commercialized expressions our, cultural, our culture exists, uh, our, our culture produces uh, when they mean kindness. God's kindness is nuanced. Like, think about this. Here, I got a question for you. Is God kind? Yes. Okay. Here's the second question. I don't know if you'll feel as confident to, like, yell your answer here, Okay. Because I, I, it took me like 30 minutes, and then I sent this to Corbin, and I was like, do you agree with this before I say this? Okay. Is God kind to everyone? Are you sure? Because he just said kindness towards some and severity towards others. Right? Like, we, we feel like we're supposed to say yes. It's funny, in the first service, I don't know if y'all are just a nicer group, the second service was like, no! <laughs> or the first, yeah, the first service was like, no. So I don't know. Uh, y'all are a good balance, I guess. But, and I understand, I'm not trying to like do the bait and switch. I know it's always like that scary thing in church when a preacher asks a question like, never raise your hand, never say anything because he's trying to get you. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to get you. I'm just trying to help you understand like there's some tension in that question of like, I don't know, he's... He's kind of more nuanced than just a simple yes or no. And maybe it's helpful to make a differentiation in his kindness in the way that the scriptures do, that maybe there's a differentiation uh, that we could define as his universal kindness and then maybe his particular kindness. Because there is something universal. Like for any of you who said, yes, yeah, like of course, there are, there are scriptures that testify to the fact that God is universally kind. Does he make the rain fall on the just and the unjust? Of course he does. Is that his kindness? It is. Does he give everybody the gift of the breath that fills their lungs and sustain them even though they spend a third of every single day, hopefully unconscious, recovering from the day and they do nothing to protect themselves or sustain themselves, but he wakes them up the next day and they have no mindfulness that God is sustaining them? He does. Could, could you be an atheist and could you hang out with all your atheist friends and laugh at the fact that anybody would believe in a God and then that very existence of the God that you deny has given you the gift of not just breath that fills your lungs, but skills and aptitude and connections and growing up in a time and a place where you can make a billion dollars and have the startup you find and sell it to Apple and then spend your weekends at your lake house and jet skiing and you don't think anything of God whatsoever and will he let you get up the next day? He will. Like, is that kind? Yeah. It is. It is. It is it's tremendously, like, it is way more patient than any of us are. Like, for any of us, we're like, did you get my gift? Did you get my gift? Did you get my gift? Like, did you, did you get my, did you, did you get, like, did you see it? Like, that's why, like, sometimes, like, I, I love sending people Uber Eats gift cards, but they, they, you find out too much because you know when somebody received it, you know when they opened it, you know when they received it. I'm like, I don't, it's too much power. I don't want to know all this because there's something in my heart, even though I love being spontaneously generous like that, to be like, did you get it? Did you, oh, I know you got it. So are you going to say thank you? Are you going to say thank you? And like, and God, God isn't like that, is he? God, God's just like, hey, get up and don't think anything of me and you'll get up the next day. Wow, he's kind. But is he particularly kind to everyone? 
Well, I mean, if you believe what Romans 11 says, which I think he says, no, there's actually, in a particular expression, there are some who will experience his severity and there are some who experience his kindness. And I think what Paul has in mind here is as it pertains to salvation, that what we say about the finished work of Christ is exclusive in nature and the consequence of the way we answer the question of whether or not we have received the forgiveness of Christ and walking in fellowship and, and, and under the lordship of the God who loved us and made us and gave us these gifts is the difference, makes all the difference in the world. And to not know him or love him or surrender him is to be on a path to experience the severity. But when we say yes to Christ, there comes the yes of the experience to experience God, not just as kind in a vague or distant way, but, but personal, that he's, he's kind. Like he, the experience of the fruit of salvation is a transformation in relationship with God from severity to friendship, not just forgiveness, but friendship and companionship and care and belovedness and adoption and shepherding and being fathered in the way we yearn to be fathered. And so I say that on the front end for two reasons. One, this is just like, we have to be nuanced and thoughtful. I think sometimes, even in our small groups, we can kind of adopt the overly simplistic language of the culture when we understand that God is actually infinitely more complex and we want to let the scriptures define the way we understand his character and his nature. Um, two, I said two things, but I'm actually gonna say three things. Two, um, I, I, I would just say, now's the moment if you were not sure where you stand with Christ to say, like, I want to acknowledge you. Like, it was, it was silly for me to live a life that I've been given and ask no questions about the one who gave it to me. And I wonder how I relate to him, and I wonder where I stand for him. Like, we're making explicit to you that Christ is calling you home so you don't have to have any questions about your experience of who God is and that you don't have to wonder if he's severe or distant or where you spend eternity, but rather you experience him as, as kind. The third, would just be, the third reason I'm bringing that up is because um, that's the way I'm gonna talk to you for the rest of this sermon is, is as, as beloved, adopted, forgiven children of God, daughters and sons, um, because that's the way that Paul's gonna talk in the rest of these verses. So I just wanna give some explanation for where we're going. So God's kindness is nuanced too. God's kindness in our sinfulness. It's interesting, the most frequent, at least that I could tell, time that, 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 that the scriptures reference the kindness of God, use that language of God as kind in the New Testament is usually on the tail end of uh, Paul discussing the worst of our mistakes. God's kindness in response to him seeing the worst in us. And this is unbelievable news because we do exist in a culture that is, for all the language of tolerance, is unbelievably unforgiving. We exist in this culture that uh, uh, defines you, gives an identity to you through the very worst things that you have done and have been done to you. We are the culture that you don't just get divorced, you are a divorcee. You don't just commit a crime, you're a criminal. You don't just cheer for the Raiders, you're a Raiders fan, right? <laughs> Little joke to lighten the mood. And, uh, but we have this haunting fear within us that if anybody sees the worst in me, they're going to abandon me because many of us have testimonies that reflect that reality. 
As a consequence, we live a life of tension where we feel like we have to pick up one of two very crap options. The first is uh, I can pretend and project so I can trick people into loving me and I can fit in as long as I can maintain that charade. The other alternative is I can finally be honest, let my guard down. You know what I've done. You know what's happened to me. You know what's really gone on. But what I'm deeply terrified of because I've experienced before is that I will be uh, mocked, forsaken, abandoned. And how kind is God that when he sees the worst in us, he doesn't abandon us, but actually accepts us and adopts us and welcomes us into his family. And what we experience on the other side of our genuine vulnerability and transparency that I do not have my act together is belovedness, is atonement so that we might be forgiven and belovedness and adoption as a child. That is the regular anthem of scripture of what God does towards his children when he encounters our mess. Look, for example, in Titus 3, Paul says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves of various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving, what's that word? Kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Because of what we did? No, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. He loves you because he loves you. Have you ever thought about that? Like he loves you because he just wants to love you. He's kind to you because he just, it's just in his nature and character. You didn't trick him. He just chose to do it. According to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul says this elsewhere, Ephesians 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that, anytime in scripture you see so that, there's a purpose. Okay, why did God do this? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in, what's that word? Kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God loves showing off his kindness in response to our messiness. It's not a burden for him. It's not an intrusion upon him. This is hard for us to wrap our mind around because for any of us, we like the idea of kindness, but our kindness has limits, doesn't it? It's like you get three tries, and then the fourth, we're going wrath, right? <laughs> like, I was thinking about this. Uh, I'm a parent, as you saw, I'm a parent. I have four kids, nine, six, three, two. I am surrounded by need all the time. And I love being a dad. It is not an intrusion. I love it. I'm, a, I'm aware that this is like a short season in my life. I will miss it when they're old. Uh, when they move out and there are no needs, you know, when the, me- when the mess leaves, so does the magic, all that type of stuff, okay? You know, like, I, I, I get it, but, like, here's, here's the honest truth. You know what I want to do tonight, especially because I preach today and it's very exhausting to preach, 
is at 8.15, I want my kids to be asleep. I want no more needs. I want to sit, to my, sit next to my wife on my phone, and I want to send her funny memes from the couch <laughs> that we're both sitting on at the same time. That's what I want to do, okay? And if it's 8.16 and not like that, I'm not like, bring your neediness to me, children, please. You know, I'm just like, like, I have this nightly routine with my son. My son is three. I think three, it's not a contest, but three is the hardest age that I've experienced so far. And I've had three go, th- I've had three go through the age of three now. And my son in particular, oh my gosh. So my son's name is Bear, uh, which we didn't intend it this way, but it became almost like a prophetic naming because his personality matches his name. And this dude has strong opinions about everything. I don't know where he gets it from, but he is just like, Oh my gosh. Okay, so and if you saw him, okay, if, you, if any of you saw him, he was, had these Spider-Man socks pulled up right over here. He loves these Spider-Man socks. He loves Spider-Man. They're supposed to fit like a 10-year-old, but he saw them and he wears them all the time. He wears them to bed, but because he's three wearing 10-year-old socks, the socks get twisted around, which normally isn't a big deal unless it's bedtime because then he rolls around in his bed and the socks get messed up. So here's what happens is that I will put him down. Here's what's, what's going to happen tonight, okay? I'm going to try to have it not happen, but if, if it's like the previous nights, here's what's going to happen is I'm going to put him to bed and I'm going to tuck him in. I'm going to say, good night, bud. But he knows and I know that's a lie. We will be seeing each other shortly, okay? (laughs) I don't mean it, he doesn't mean it. We'll see you in five, okay? (laughs) So I'll go back down and after five minutes, be like, Dad, my Spider-Man sucks, my Spider-Man sucks. Now the first time, and probably particularly today because I preached on kindness, I will be like ready to come in, but it's okay. You know, it's tough being little and God has entrusted you to me. And here you go, turn, turn. Good night, bud, love you. Now, that's a lie too, okay? So the first time it doesn't work. Now he'll call me a second time and he'll be like, dad, dad, my socks. Okay, now I go deeper in the well at that point. You know, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I'm getting a little frustrated. I'm getting a little angry. I wanna be alone, but uh, uh, you know, like, when the mess leaves, so does the magic, and he's only little for a small period of time, and, you know, soon he'll be a teenager, and he won't call, he won't even want me to tuck him in anymore, and, like, let's cherish this. Let's cherish this, Dad. This is your moment and your time to shine, and, you know, okay, I'll fix the socks and put him down. Now, the third time, that's my limit, okay? The third time, I mean, I just genuinely want to go in there and be like, if you call me again, I'm gonna take the socks off your feet. I'm gonna light them on fire in your room so we don't have to have this conversation ever again. And last night, last night, on the third time, we, you just, I, like, yeah, I just had to go to a place of being like, nothing else, all right, nothing else. No more needs tonight until you see the sun come through the window. I don't wanna hear anything else from you unless it's an absolute emergency. And then you go down and you feel awful about yourself and you're just like, that's parenting, that's parenting, you know. But thank God, God does not experience our neediness in that way. Our neediness, our desperation, our messiness, our crying out, our calling out will never exhaust the Father. He welcomes it. He's like the one being in the cosmos who wants to be bothered. 
It's so other because, you know, for all of us, and particularly when people get power, they architect their entire lives around, like, how do I get away from neediness as much as possible? And our father is in that way. Like, you'll never bother him. If you call out for him in the middle of the night, he specializes in times such as those. And I'm just trying to, I'm trying to emphasize this because what a lot of times can happen is that Satan, who Jesus describes as an accuser, can bring the voice of accusation, which this is, you should even have discernment to the voices in your head you're listening to, this accusation that your messiness is too much for the Father and he is exhausted with you and is like, oh, rolling his eyes and coming into the middle of the night being like, I can't believe we have to have this conversation again. That accusation is from the accuser, not the father. He loves, specializes, welcomes us to come to him when we make mistakes, when we sin, even if it's the 10,000th time we reject, rebuke the voice of the accuser who says you shouldn't even pray, you don't even deserve to pray, you shouldn't even go to church, you shouldn't even go to small group, just stay away, you don't deserve it, you don't deserve it, you don't deserve it. Jesus says you don't deserve it, but I earned it, so come on home. He loves showing off. Like, it's, I love Paul's language there. It's like he loves to show off his kindness. He loves to put it on display. So our, here's the equation again from Paul, when we bring to God, let's use Paul's language, foolishness, disobedience, waywardness, slavery to sin, malice, envy, hatred, death, following the ways of the world, following Satan, deserving of wrath, when we bring that to God, we are met with atonement, He's not saying it's no big deal. He's saying it's a huge deal. He's not saying don't worry about it. He's just saying I'll worry about it. Atonement and kindness. Atonement and kindness. Now, this is the important thing. I just want to make this distinction because churches like this one who have healthy theologies that have a high view of atonement sometimes don't go far enough where it's like, oh, yeah, he forgives me, but he just kind of has to put up with me. Right? And it's just like, oh, wretched, vile, awful person. Like, that's not the way the scriptures describe you. I still think about it. I listened to, Corbin, your sermon about 1 Corinthians, where they're like making all the biggest mistakes. <laughs> you just dropped your pen. <laughs> yeah. and, and you talked about the way that Paul uses the language of belovedness and children to describe people who are making the dumbest of mistakes. That's atonement and that's kindness. That's not atonement and begrudging, I gotta put up with you guys. It's atonement and it's kindness. Third and finally, God's kindness is what changes us. I, I love this because this is maybe the key cultural differentiator from the language we use around here because again, if, if there is a vague definition of, of, of kindness in the cultural moment, what, what somebody is trying to project when they say be kind is don't tell anybody they're wrong, just celebrate whatever it is that they do. Now, in the scriptures, God's kindness is inseparable from personal transformation. It's the kindness of God. It's a grasping of the kindness of God that not only tells us we should change, but gives us the power to change. That's what Paul's saying here. 
in Romans 2, when he says, do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? He's saying in understanding, hey, let me, let me say this. I know I'm hating on the culture a lot, but there's a lot of bad things in the culture. And I think one of the, one of the additional bad things in the culture is a lot of times what you're led to believe is if you can hate yourself enough, if you can be hard enough on yourself, then you can finally be the person you always wanted to be. Guilt, shame, and self-hatred does not have the power to transform you. It can momentarily change you and so a lot of times, not only do you revert back to old patterns of behavior, but a lot of times more destructive patterns of behavior. And then you're stuck on the guilt treadmill and you just gotta get off that thing, beloved. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that Paul would say, all right, what leads to repentance? What leads to transformation? Is there an aspect of sorrow over our sin? Of course, James talks about godly sorrow, but is it just thinking about how terrible you are and how God has to put up with you? No, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. You wanna say it together? It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's grasping the kindness of God that will change you. You know, it's interesting for me, whenever I would teach on repentance, it's kind of a loaded word, right? Because I think a lot of times in Christian circles what repentance can be thought of is think about how bad you are for a while. Okay, now do that. Well, what am I doing next? No, just keep thinking about it. You know, just keep thinking about how, how terrible you are. And you're like, okay, I'm doing it. Like, what, what next? Now, like, for me, uh, I, I would always teach repentance through this illustration. And now I don't think it's, like, great. But here's the way I would teach it, because I think it was incomplete, is that repentance is really like a, a turning or a changing. So, like, we follow the ways of the world, and we're living in self-destructiveness and sinfulness and unhealth, and we're experiencing the consequences of it, and then we hear God's word, and we wake up to the reality, and we're like, oh, God's back that way. Okay, I'm not gonna walk down this path. I'm gonna walk down this path, and I'm gonna start walking towards God and walking the ways of God. Now, I think that's like 90% right, but it's missing the most important 10% of like, well, what are we walking towards? Are we just kind of like doing what's right and thinking about how stupid we were to do things that were wrong? And here's what I think is the best biblical image of repentance is it's Luke 15 when the prodigal son comes home. It is, man, I'm making these sexual mistakes and I'm making these financial mistakes and I'm making these dietary mistakes. I mean, that's Luke 15. It's some major dietary mistakes. I mean, it's like he's eating pig slop and he's just like, I don't want to do this anymore. So I put down the buckets and I walk home. But here's the difference is that the prodigal in Luke 15 had his eyes up asking the question, is it safe for me to come home? Like when, when I see the father, is he gonna beat me? Or is he gonna welcome me? Is he gonna scowl at me? Or is he gonna greet me with a smile? And what must have been going through his mind when he sees the father, which would have been very culturally inappropriate, sprinting in his direction being like, does he have a stick? You know, back there, is he going to hit me? Is he going to reprimand me? But the father greets the son who comes home with a smile and an embrace and says, hey, do you want pizza or barbecue? Because we're throwing a party. Because I'm so pumped that you came home. Do you understand? Like, repentance is, I was going this way. I hear God's word. I'm going this way. But we're not looking down. And we're not even looking in. Do you understand that? We're not just looking in being like, I'm so stupid, I'm so stupid, I'm so stupid, I'm so stupid. It's looking up 
at the father saying with greater confidence than even the prodigal that I will be met with a smile because of the finished work of Christ. That the one true son of God stepped out of heaven into history, lived righteous in my place so that I might be blameless before him, died in my place so that I might be forgiven, resurrected in my place so that I might be victorious over the greatest enemies of humanity like Satan, sin, death, and hell. And consequently, I don't even have to ask the question, but rather I have clarity to say it's safe to come home. I can come home. I can come home. Eyes up, looking in the distance, I'm ready to change. It's safe to come home to you. And I will not be met with an eye roll. I will not be met with a beating, but I will be met with an embrace in a party. I don't know why, but that's just who God is. God is kind because he's kind, and I'm gonna live like that's true because it is. I just wanna say this again. Maybe the power to change the thing that's been so hard to change in your life is not you just beating yourself up more or getting in some quote-unquote accountability group where a bunch of dudes, you know, make each other feel awful. Maybe, what, like, here's the thing. What if God's kindness actually is the power to change you? What if God's true in Romans 2? And I think he is. So with all that said, let me, let me ask two questions, and then we'll be done here. Oh, actually, I do want to read that quote. I forgot about it the first time, but here's what Charles Spurgeon said about this, which is a great way to end uh, a sermon, right? He said, uh, when I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast, which I love that expression, to think that I could have ever rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. So let me ask you two questions and then we'll be done. As we transition to a time of prayer, one, what is God's kindness calling me to receive? So what is it, maybe there's an area in your life where you're just not receiving what the scriptures have said that are true about the way that he approaches you and encounters you, particularly when you bring to him your messiness and your sinfulness. What do you need to receive? And then what do you need to give, okay? How is it that the way that you've experienced God has been to transform the way that you maybe relate to or encounter somebody around you? So maybe God brings to mind through his spirit, your, your kids or a spouse or a difficult family member. And um, yeah, I, I would just, I, here's what I would encourage you with. If God brings somebody to mind, um, I would really encourage you to write that down or tell somebody maybe you came with just to like, get, like don't, don't view that as accidental. Don't view that as accidental. View that as an invitation to be thinking and pressing into how do I not just hear but apply this and obey this in my life. So uh, I'm going to pray, and uh, then we'll transition to time response. Uh, Father, very thankful for this opportunity. It is your kindness even to be here, and uh, thankful for your kindness um, uh, to the men and women who are here today. Uh, I pray that you would be with them. I pray that you would... Uh, help them tangibly anew experience their kindness. And um, yeah, I pray that right now, your Holy Spirit, who is birthing the fruit of kindness within us, uh, would give us clarity of mind of how and where we should do that. 
Um, before we jump to what we're supposed to do, I pray that we would first meditate on, is that what we're experiencing from you? And then second, um, would you bring to mind uh, people that we want to transform um, our disposition towards? And, and maybe they're people that, that are easy just to be harsh towards or sarcastic towards or, you know, maybe, you know, the, 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 I don't know why you're bringing this in mind, but I always just think about how, like, spouses a lot of times can just resign that, like, I tried kindness and it's not going well. And so sarcasm and anger and distance and cold shouldering is kind of like the way that the, the, the environment of our, of our home. Um, I pray that you would melt that um, and produce warmth that comes from your heart. Um, yeah, lead us now to know how you want us to not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word.